Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Jeremy Sherman. When your name went across my desk, I was searching for guests, you have written down that you are an expert on assholes. And I had to talk to you. I had to get you on the show and learn, one, what that's about, two, what your thoughts are on it, and three, how you got into it. Uh, yes, I'm delighted to hear from you, but I have to start with a correction. I am not an expert on assholes. I'm a specialist, and the difference is really important to me. There's no quality more likely to mark an asshole than claiming to be an expert on them. They are, I mean, think about the world's greatest assholes. They thought they were absolute experts on who was the asshole. Assholes are anybody they disagreed with. Um, no, I am, I'm attempting scientific nonpartisan work uh, on uh, what is a butthead since it can't just be whoever I happen to butt heads with. I'm a specialist. I consider this work to be a fruitful exercise in futility. I don't think I'll ever come to an objective definition of assholes, but I think it's well worth trying. And I've been at it for about 25 years. I love it. I love it. So specialist, you're researching it. You're trying to use objective measures to get to the bottom of this. It's really interesting. I mean, it's a really... This means a fun topic, and I'm sure there's a lot of depth to it as well as you've been doing this research. But before we kick into where you're at, I'm curious, what got you into this to begin with? How did you get interested in this topic? Well, um, I turned 65 last June, and one of the things I had to say goodbye to was midlife crises, because at 65, you're officially over it. I was hoping to squeeze in a third, but I only got in two. I didn't like them, but um, no, they were they were painful, but they were growth experiences. They were from the ashes experiences, as is often the case. Um, in my case, the first one was probably the big wallop that got me into psychoproctology in the first place. I had been working for about uh, 20, 25 years um, in, you could say, uh, activism or uh, community organizing. I had founded a nonprofit lobbying organization on environmental issues. I had been a member of the world's largest hippie commune in Tennessee. I was an elected elder there at 24. I was really dedicated to the kind of vision uh, we had back in the 60s and 70s, a sense that the world was going to get better and better, that people would wake up, they would realize that everybody was basically an educatable unit, that you just had to give them the, I think it was like the hippie equivalent of the gospel, and then they would realize that love is the answer, and they would straighten up and fly right. And by about the 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 late 80s, early 90s, I was beginning to recognize that that's actually not accurate and that you can't really even engage in moral philosophy unless you reckon with the fact that three to five percent of us are psychopaths. So no, we're not educatable units. You don't just wake up. Lots of people aspire to wake up. That's a lot of what From the Ashes 
romanticism can be about is that I, you know, I once was lost, but now I'm found kind of a thing. But no, it's we do not transcend human nature. And around that time, so I'd been, I had been working as an activist. I'd founded this organization. I'd moved on from it. I ran public affairs for a big green company um, out of England called The Body Shop. Um, and then I'd gone and taken a degree in public policy at Berkeley, where I started to study social psychology. And around that time, I was beginning to deal at a personal level with um, the ways in which we're not educatable units. I have three children, um, and one of them was diagnosed uh, by the head of psycho psychiatry at the local children's hospital as someone who would never understand the meaning of or else which was, we thought at the time, an outrageous thing to claim about a 16-year-old. But now that he's 41, I would say it's kind of borne out. And so I was dealing with a very difficult situation in which I couldn't, I, I was his father, I wanted to love him unconditionally. At the same time, I needed to make sure that my children didn't grow up to be assholes. I got interested in, uh, I found myself uh, oscillating between thinking that he was handicapped or indulgent. So he was a kid with the the the, the difficult situation where um, his handicap did not engender sympathy. You didn't feel sorry for him. You felt annoyed by him. He was um, obnoxious in lots of ways. Um, well, if he was handicapped, I had to accommodate him. Love your child unconditionally. If he's indulgent, I have to push him. That's what father's role. And that's what got me interested in decision theory. And evolutionary theory, that's where I, I went back to school, got a PhD in that. Um, my marriage was falling apart at the time. The activism work that I was doing was not yielding the kinds of effects I was hoping for. We were beginning to see the backlash that has uh, become gone full bloom by now in the United States against that kind of a movement um, to, to create better harmony in the world. Um, and so I would say that that was a lot of what got me into it. Um, it was a severe midlife crisis. I cried pretty much every day. Um, but it yielded for me a shift that has kept me going ever since. That is, it posed for me the questions that have been, it turns out, life-size. I just, I work those questions and the questions that follow from them ever since. That's what I, that's what I do with my day. And one of the big ones is this one about what is an asshole and how, how, how do you, how can you tell who they are? How do you, uh, how do you stop them? That is, I, I have a feeling that assholes would, that there would be no reason they would be tempted to stop um, being assholes unless it costs them something. So you've got to make it cost them. And also, how do you prevent people from becoming, what, what, what can we do for asshole prevention? Uh, that's one of the topics that I took up back then, um, um, among others. Yeah, those are great topics. I want to, we'll talk about those, but I want to bring you back to this story that you have of the disillusionment. Can I say a little bit about that, of going from being a leader in a hippie organization to studying assholes? Like, what did you see out there in the world or what, what was that process like for you on a personal level? Well, um, yeah, so I now research, write, speak at conferences about cults. And the commune I was part of was not exactly a cult by most standard definitions, but I would still say that I was quite cultish about it. Um, and that my outside friends thought I had become a bit of an asshole by joining it. I was smug. Um, and reflecting back on that experience and what preceded it. So before I joined the commune, I was a fairly anxious bunny. 
I was, uh, I was kind of a late bloomer in a pretty competitive intellectual family. Um, and, uh, I had also inherited, um, a substantial amount of money at a very young age, at the age of 16. Um, uh, in part because my father was also part of the counterculture movement and was trying to break away from his own father in some way and decided to defy his father by giving money to us. The, 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 my grandfather used to say, you don't give a 16-year-old an Eldorado Cadillac. Well, my dad didn't, but he gave me enough money that I could. And unlike others in the family, I was really eaten up by guilt about it. You know, these days, inheritors have a different status than they did in the 60s. In the 60s, I just felt like I was going to have to do something really important in order to change, uh, it, in order to rationalize having basically received at age eight, uh, 16 a lifetime salary. Um, it was a kind of vocational derailment that money can liberate people to feel like they can do whatever they want. It did not in my case. I felt like I really had to do something as big as Martin Luther King or else I wasn't going to be able to justify it. So I joined this commune where you worked very hard. It was a lovely place. I'm still buzzed with all these people from there, um, even though a great many of them still think that love is the answer. I don't think that love is the answer. I think it's the question, what to love, not. Uh, but, but. Um, but it was a great boot camp for me. Um, and yet I do think that a lot of what motiva motivated me there was freedom from doubt, freedom from guilt, freedom from anxiety. Those three qualities, if you get enough of them, you're stuck with self-doubt, doubt about whether you've got what it takes to, to, to handle your life. And um, the vacation from that was worth all the hard labor I put in there. We were really hard working. We built 175 buildings from scratch. We took care of it. We were self-sufficient. Half of us were kids, 1,400 people. Half of us were kids. Um, I was the fire chief. I was a plumber. I did two and a half years working in Guatemala doing water projects for poor villages, um, uh, I mean, it was just a joy and it was really hard labor. It, it gave me a good work ethic I wouldn't have had otherwise as a spoiled rich kid. Um, but uh, but I, think, I think what happened was I began to see that we had not transcended, that all of the human nature that, that played out um, in the cultures we were rejecting um, was playing out in us. You don't escape human nature. Transcendence is a fine goal as long as you realize no one achieves it. And um, so in a way, I was, dra I was yanked down into the reality of being human and got very interested in human nature. I, I would say another quality of it is, uh, so in addition to what everything else I described about my childhood, at age eight, I entered four-day-a-week psychoanalysis, on-the-couch psychoanalysis. I've had a total of 2,000 hours of psychoanalysis, which was a whole lot of looking at my inner shadow kind of stuff. Um, the first five years were starting at age eight, and then I went back after I left that commune. Um, and there was a transition for me when I stopped wondering what's wrong with me and started to pay attention to what's up with us. And around this time, I fall into the company of a Harvard biological anthropologist, neuroscience professor, um, who was really digging deep into the what's up with us questions. And we've been collaborating now for 25 years. He happened to move to teach at Berkeley. He's not Berkeley, and we take a dog walk uh, four days a week. And we've been researching and writing together for just this long. And uh, and. 
Um, so in a way, I am parasitic on his encyclopedic knowledge. The guy has studied a lot and uh, was known at Harvard as a saint and a genius, the saint part being that he would be happy. He doesn't care what my status is. He never pulls rank on me. If I'm interested in the same questions as he is, we can jam. And that's what we do. So uh, there was a sobering, just the shorter answer to your question is that there was a sobering about humankind. I saw us using the formulas that we thought were our salvation, our path to transcendence. And sure enough, we figured out a way to use those, uh, that, e that ideology, that e ethos in the service of the same kind of human nature stuff that everybody wants. You know, I, I do not think you can find a formula or ideology that the ego can't use to its, its, its own benefit. Um, so these days, some of my friends think of me as kind of pessimistic. I think of myself as highly optimistic, like an oncologist. That is, an oncologist is trying to bring about well-being and tries to do that by paying attention to the the mind cancer, the, mm -hmm. the cancers that keep on snagging us. And so when I look at woke movements, I don't believe they're going to wake us up. I believe that they're the, the latest rendition of the kind of thing that uh, that is likely to pull us down. And I try to pay attention to them. Hence my interest in psychoproctology. Mm -hmm. Love it. I love the term psychoproctology. That's really <laughs> funny. Um, so it's a big question, but what, what did you learn about human nature? What would you describe human nature if you could boil that down after doing some of this work? Yes. So, and yeah, so this will feed into the, the, the topic of psychoproctology, which is, by the way, a light name for what I can to be, consider to be, for the reasons I mentioned early on, a really touchy subject. You mm -hmm. cannot take yourself too seriously in this work. But here's the heart of it. Uh, we're this mid-sized mammal that recently acquired this newfangled apparatus called language, which gives us a capacity for concepts that no other organism has. So I think of us as adapting to reality under the drunken influence of language mm -hmm. that makes us both more visionary and more delusional than any other organism. When I first met this Harvard neuroscientist, he had just fit, written a, a magisterial, a big, important book on, on the evolution of language and what makes it different from, for example, animal calls and all of that. And uh, that's been central to it. Now, all organisms um, have to protect themselves against degeneration and repair what degenerates, which means that they have to take in energy to do the repair work, which, but they also have to protect against energy because energy is exactly what degenerates them. So we ought to be selectively interactive. Um, we have to eat food, not poison. You know, we have to, uh, so in humans with language that turns into confirmation bias. We take in the ideas that regenerate that we can use to regenerate our mojo, and we keep out the ideas that would degenerate our mojo. So I would say that's one fundamental uh, challenge of being human. Uh, you know, is that is that we'll, we we will have a tendency to speed read criticism. We don't want to really. It's it, it it's a buzzkill, and we'd rather keep the buzz up now. Mature people or decent people um, recognize that confirmation bias is a problem they have to manage. And I would say the, 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 the first pass or short, the short version of it is that assholes treat confirmation bias as the solution to all of their problems. So that just kind of staying in that echo chamber, right, of just finding people that agree with you and continuing to feed the same ideas. 
there's that and then there's another part of it which i would say is that they get they become they find a formula by which they can become self-winding meaning that no matter how you shake them it confirms them and that's why you'll get trolls they love it when you attack them they're basically exhibitionists they're proud to go out now pretend they're interested in a conversation, sidle up for conversation. And when they've got your attention, they open their trench coat, show off their stiff little heroic certainty. And no matter how you react, they can claim victory. So it's not just the echo chamber. They, the echo chamber thrives on the idea, what I call weagly, the glee of being us, not those losers out there. Right, right. It's, it's about us, not about them. Which, yeah, I mean, I associate to like QAnon, some of the recent things that have been going on with them of this idea that it seems like any stimulus, anything that any polit politician says just confirms their theories, right? Yeah. It's just no matter what stimulus you give them, it just makes them stronger. Right. It, everything proves them right. In that sense, they're a self-winding movement. And mm -hmm. can you imagine the glee a human would feel when they discover that technique? Um it's, yeah, you're I mean, invincible, it's just, right? You're invincible. It's like yeah. alcohol at a cocktail party. You can yeah. talk to anybody. You're 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 up for anything at that point. They can't get enough. It's like it's like becoming nouveau riche. It's like an inheritance of godly qualities. It's really quite intense. I, and right. I do remember my own sense of that when I joined the commune. You know, right. I, I wouldn't put it past me. None of this is nothing human is foreign to me or anyone. I don't think. Absolutely. I, I agree. And it just, it makes me think of this idea of, it's just so simple in a way, right? Like everything is just makes sense. Everything falls into yeah. place. Yeah. You know, there's like a, a coherent worldview, which humans crave that, right? Yeah. I mean, in my practice, I talk a lot about managing chaos and managing randomness and managing things that's outside of our control. But it sounds like if you're an entrenched asshole, that's not even relevant to you, right? Because you have a mastery over everything because yeah. everything that comes in makes sense. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So we're going to move into our first commercial break here, but we'll pick up this topic um, next time and dive more into this idea of an asshole and your thoughts around that. So if you're listening, uh, stay tuned to this really interesting conversation and we'll see you on the other side of the break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m a r c dash azulay a z o u l a y dot teachable dot com you are listening to from the ashes with mark azulay to reach the show today please call one eight 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 346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
346-9141 or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm here with Jeremy Sherman talking about assholes. So I think just kick us right off with your psychoproctology. What is an asshole? How do you find one in the wild? How do you diagnose assholery when you encounter it in your life? All right. So I, I just put out a book on the subject called What's Up with Assholes um, and how to spot and stop them without becoming one. I think of the, the core challenge there is how to humbly humble people who will do anything to avoid humility. Um, but the first maybe 150 to 200 pages of the book are just trying to get clear on what's really going on with these people. Um, with, with this lifestyle. It's not a person, it's a lifestyle that one can adopt. I think of it sort of as a, as a detour uh, to an easier path, uh, path that is available no matter what path you're on in your life. That is, no matter what path you're on, there are detours to assholia where you can use it to, uh, to avoid humility at all costs. But a lot of that work in the first 150, 200 pages are an attempt to get clear on what's going on with them so that I can come up with a better name. Asshole is a terrible name for them. For one practical, for one reason, I mean, I've had all sorts of trouble uh, marketing this book because it's a curse word. It's not descriptive at all. Um, and not only that, if we have one job with our kids, it's to make sure that they don't grow up to be assholes, which makes it awkward. I, I mean, as I don't be a bully, but bullying itself is a weird word. It implies that you're bullyable. Um, it's kind of like saying, no fair, you're stronger than me. So that's not a very credible word from my standpoint. But to have a word like asshole as the number one thing we're trying to prevent in our kids is like trying to potty train our kids when you can't say the word poop. I mean, you need, you need a better word in there. So, and, and we have these psych words that fit in there. We can call them narcissists or psychopaths or sociopaths. I think that the category is broader than that. Maybe sociopath gets close, but I, but I think that it's actually a broader category of behaviors that people can get into. Um, and uh, I end up coming up with the term Trump bot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, no, it is not named after Trump. I know people won't believe that necessarily. And I would say, yes, Donald Trump is a he is quintessential Trump bot from my perspective. I mean, he's a perfect a role model or troll model for this work because you could mistake Stalin for a communist or you could mistake Hitler for a nationalist. It's really hard to tell what Trump stands for. And that's to our advantage here. It's like, like, it's like generic what it is. But what do I mean by Trump bot? These are people who have found that they can play, robotically play, trumped up Trump cards. That is, a Trump card is the whole point of it. That is, I am invincible. And trumped up means you can play any card you want. Um, it, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. I call it bullshit dozing. That is, you're bulldozing by engaging in bullshit. The technical meaning of bullshit at this point is distinct from lying. Lying is knowing you're not telling the truth. Bullshitting is not caring what's true or not. So bullshit dozing is what they'll do. I actually think that Trump bots or assholes um, just have discovered a, a wild card Trump card formula which is what any organism would crave. A wild card, they can do whatever they want. A trump card, whatever they do is the best. 
And imagine if you have a card game where you've got a card that's both wild card and trump card, that would be a coveted card. That would be the card that simply beats everything all around, and it doesn't matter what it stands for. It can stand for anything. Uh, there's an extraordinary fluidity. And since I do origins of life research, I recognize this is what any organism would want. They would want full agency, nothing constraining them, and perfect safety. They'd want perfect freedom and perfect safety. So I would think, I think that just with the point is that with language, you can act like you've got that. You can, in effect, play God or God or some demagogue's uh, uh, humble servant that you can lord it over other people. It doesn't matter what you claim to believe. It's got nothing to do with beliefs. Um, and so I think that's basically the heart of it. How can you tell when you're dealing with someone like this? Well, inconsistency uh, about everything but your own pride would be an example. There's a variety of ways I list in the, in the book, none of them perfect. I consider it guesswork to tell whether you're dealing with an asshole but I, or a Trump bot. But I would say we need to start paying attention to that distinction. With normal, decent people, we really need to show some receptivity. We have to pay some attention. I think that it is downright dangerous and enabling with an asshole. You need to actually flip you need the, the wisdom to know the difference between when to be receptive and when not to be receptive. And I think that uh, nations, uh, populations, families get into a whole lot of trouble by failing to see that that's an important pivot point. At some point, you stop listening and you start addressing the, the, the lifestyle itself. Yeah, right. And not enabling these people, right? That's where my mind goes of giving them yeah. a platform or letting them speak in some ways or just kind of like being curious, right? At some point I'm hearing you have to recognize the fact that it's a Trump bot, that there is some level of superiority, grandiosity, this uh, like opaqueness, right? Like an inability to even connect. The person's not connecting with you. You can't connect with them. So, so what do you do? I mean, how do you deal with them if you've spotted it? Right. So, um, so I want to say one thing quickly about the enabling thing. Um, we all know in the psych profession that you do not um, ask a psychopath whether they mean it or not. You do not take their words seriously as if they are meant. Well, if you look at the news in any nation, you could take a, a communist nation, a, 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 you know, a right-wing, left-wing, none of that matters. But if you look at what the news does when they address directly the comments of people who are clearly... Um, uh, in this case, they might be professional. They could be econopaths, like psychopaths for a living. Um, but uh, that's enabling. It's not just giving them an audience. It's any time you actually act as though they might mean what they're saying. If you said, really, do you mean that? No, you, you don't. That's, that's the wrong way to go. It, it gives them credibility. If you argue with them, if you continue to make the case that they're, don't you see you're being a hypocrite? All that's enabling. So, um, I have two techniques that I employ. First of all, um, out of all that origins of life research and everything else, I have become what I would call a fallibilist ironist. Fallibilism is a term out of psychology, which means, which I translate as no matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. And irony, I think it's overlooked as the alternative to what I'd call fundamentalist hypocrisy or cynical hypocrisy. Fundamentalist hypocrisy is I'll tell you where the line is drawn and you've crossed it. And I never cross it, though, of course, I do. 
Um, that's and you can do that. You know, there's lots of different styles of that. Um, cynical hypocrisy is there's no lines. Everybody's a hypocrite. Everybody's an asshole, and I can do whatever I want. Um, irony is an interesting concept. So an ir ironic situation is uh, one where you you did you guessed well and it turned out badly, or you guessed badly and it turned out well. And I don't think you can escape these. These are these are true of reality, um, which makes life both tragic and comic. That is, you can die from one of those bad guesses, uh, good guesses that turn out bad, um, and at the same time, it's actually slapstick. So I am an ironic fallibilist or fallibilist ir ironist, and I think you've got to flaunt that with them because they are the opposite of that. They are actually both cynical and fundamentalist hypo hypocrites. Uh, Trump bots will scold you for not for crossing the line and then laugh at you for caring about where the lines are. They, they want it both ways. So um, the two main techniques that I promote that I think are underutilized is one, just focus on their wildcard Trump card formula. It basically means that you you ignore all the content and you keep on saying, see what he did there? He did the same thing. He he'll, do he'll say or do anything to pretend that he wins everything. Um, and no matter what they say in response, it will actually affirm what you're saying. That is, these guys are one-trick phonies. They only have that one trick. And if they had any capacity uh, to think any deeper than that, it has atrophied. They don't need it and it would only get in the way. So they're actually totally reliant on it. And you can expose them by just hammering away at that. Do not allow them to reframe the debate. Do not get taken in. Don't let them lead you around by the nose by focusing on this or that issue that they think they want you to think they care about. And the other is to flaunt it at them that you are actually a fallibilist. So that would, here's an example of that. If I've had, uh, I, I have to do a lot of practice with people like this, mostly in the form of conversations with trolls and people who comment on my articles. And I'll often get scolded for being a name caller. caller. Well, a standard move that people make when they're called like this, especially conscientious people, is to deny it or claim somehow, you know, they, they'll move towards what I call fundamentalist hypocrisy. No, I didn't do that. I, I didn't name call. I didn't mean to name call. Sorry, I name called. None of that. All of that serves them. Because really, it is three-dimensional chess where they're playing on a completely different dimension, where they don't care what's right or wrong at all. They are only out to true, prove their dominance. So what I do with that is a kind of inverse psychology, which is to say, of course I name call. Like you, like everyone, you just name called me by calling me a name caller. I, my answer, I'm not just trying to name call. I'm trying to name call with surgical precision. I'm trying to name call where it helps, not where it hurts. Whereas you pretend that you are living by this rule that of course you're not living by. Every one of the popular moral victims um, is hypocritical, like don't be a name caller, which is name calling. Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't be judgmental. Do not be negative. Commit yourself to flexibility. Be intolerant of intolerance. Hate, hate. And they, the list goes on. Even the golden rule actually is kind of paradoxical like that. And so that would make a cynical hypocrite say, see, it's all bullshit. But an ironist says, see, I've got to really cultivate the wisdom to know when to, when to be intolerant, when to be tolerant, when to name call, when not to name call. That's lifelong work 
that I have to do in order to figure out when to be closed-minded, when to be open-minded, when to be for freedom, when to be for constraint. There are no formulas where the means are the ends. Like it's always good to stay with things and be loyal, or it's always good to emancipate yourself. That's nonsense. We're all trying to figure out when to do each of those things. Mm -hmm. That's why I said love is the answer. So the two techniques coming back around, one is you just hammer away at that the fact that they will say or do anything to avoid standard human humility, that they're basically playing God. And the other one is to uh, stick their face in their impotence with their moral rules, um, because a real person, a real adult, knows that we're trying to figure out when to do what things. That you know, if they say you're unloving, you say. Yeah. I'm, uh, yes. Sometimes I'm unloving. I don't love everything. Nobody does. Um, and it, it, that's not the same as a cynical, hey, everybody's an asshole. No, it's that we are all trying to figure out what to love and what not to love. Nobody could possibly love everything. You can't, you can't, you can't hate me. You can't shame me for shame, for, for shaming. You can't, you know, you can't hate me for hating um, without in, a, in effect showing that you're like the rest of us. Yeah, so so those are some techniques. It's really those are fantastic. I'm hearing it's like really rolling with the punches and admitting your own fallibility, right? And admitting kind of like the the joke that is the world, but also practicing this in the moment present awareness. You know, a lot of my background is in Eastern religion and Buddhism, and, and it rings true from that perspective, right? Of that living as a daily practice, the moment by moment practice, and there isn't an absolute morality or absolute rule set, which I think these assholes or these Trump bots live by, right? It sounds like it's more about being flexible, being present and figuring out what every moment is rather than just having a kind of tablet delivered from the heavens that you just follow blindly. Yeah, we would love to have one, but I really do think, and this is based on the origins of life research, that life has a lot in common with driving a winding, evolving road that changes as we drive it. Um, and these fundamentalist rules like uh, don't be negative or love is the answer, that's like having a backseat driver who's telling you to always turn right on a winding road. I think of it as you've got to watch both sides of the road. You can be too much or too little of anything. So my equanimity as a human comes from actually being equally concerned about whether I'm too assertive or not assertive enough, too open or not open enough. If I'm roughly equally concerned about both sides of the winding road I'm on, that's as much centeredness as I, as I need, want, and can afford. Mm -hmm. Any more than that would be me closing my eyes and pretending there's a formula for driving this winding road. Right. We'll be kind of doing the same thing that you're trying to combat that's right. Um, so yeah. you mentioned at the beginning of the segment uh, about humility, right? So I think we've talked a lot about how the asshole thing can be very intoxicating. But I'm wondering, in your mind, I think I heard you say something like humility is very threatening to these individuals. Can you say a little bit about that, about what the fear behind some of this trump behavior might be? Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a human fear. I think that we are an extremely anxious species, mm -hmm. all of us, all members of us. If you compare what your cat could worry about before falling asleep to what you could worry about, all the real and imaginary direct and indirect threats that you, and missed opportunities that, that a human can conceive, given language, we would just be an anxious species. So there's a tendency to think that all assholes have a chip on their shoulder. I don't actually 
subscribe to that. I think you can you can get into it one way or another. The point is what they get from it. It's a huge advantage to be to be able to play God like that. It's just much easier than being human. So it, it sounds like it really is an intoxicant, right? It sounds yeah. like using language as a drug or using a mindset as a drug as a way yeah. to just be, I think you use the word drunk on language, right? Drunk on this way of being that puts them in this high position. Right. So yeah, you could talk about them as assholics. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's one version of it. Um, and uh, uh, I've thought about starting a group called Asanon, <laughs> Asanon for people who are dealing with them. But um, yes, it is a drug. But my point about language is also that we're all drunk on it. It's distorting all of our perceptions of reality. Some people are on deck trying to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all the DUI in that respect. But some people are just high on it and have closed their eyes and are, you know, they're, they're ticking time bombs. Right. Yeah. We're all just like dumb monkeys trying to figure it out. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to go into our next commercial break. But when we come back, I want to hear more. I like your practical tips, more about how to deal with assholes, how to recognize them um, and what to do if you might be an asshole and want to reform. How about that? Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. See you on the other side. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to our final segment of From the Ashes. And we got the question that's at least on my mind, which is, how do you prevent becoming an asshole? Or if you think you might be an asshole, how do you walk it back a little bit? Well, uh, great questions. Um, first of all, I would say that if you're concerned that you're an asshole, you're probably not. <laughs> there, I mean, Fair. that is, I, I have long worked by the opera- on, the, on the assumption that if I don't want to be an asshole, I should expect some anxiety. Um, that that's, that's the heart of it. Still, I, I have to struggle throughout all my work with this difference between doing asshole things and being an asshole. And I have found some guidance from actually going back to the original quote that everybody knows as power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. The original quote was power tends to corrupt. 
uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I would say that that's true of all the power moves. I think that everybody gaslights, everybody is a hypocrite, everybody lies. And I don't mean that, and I think the questions of degree matter, but the, the degree that matters most is the absolute degree. And absolute is an interesting word. The etymology of it is dissolved away from. That is, you become hermetically sealed. Nothing can get through to you. You become literally incorrigible. Nothing can correct your path. And so even though I disagree with all sorts of assholes and decent people, that's not the point here. The point is that an asshole is actually um, absolutely un incapable of learning. The freedom that they demand is the freedom from ever having to adapt. And if there's one rule, you know, studying the origins of life, 3.8 billion years, the one rule is adapt to reality or die. And we can debate what reality contains, but I don't think there's much debate about the container itself. Reality is the stuff that'll fuck you up if you ignore it, you know, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's all the threats you got to pay attention to, or they really will cost you. So we can debate what those threats are and all of that. But, but there are people who simply are pretending like they rule reality rather than the other way around. Um, and so I, I try to be, I try to do asshole things in where it helps more than it harms. Uh, that is, I am sure that I lie. I certainly lie to myself. That is part of my mojo is kept uh, intact by, by again speed reading critics and all of that but uh, but i but i try to manage that that's what i meant early on by managing confirmation bias um as for preventing it here's here's the heart of it and it relates to what i was saying just before the break um we would be an incredibly anxious species and incredibly denialist that is we would face more problems and have more ways to rationalize ignoring them in fact i do some work in astrobiology um, and I would say any language organization, organism anywhere in the universe would be dealing with problems like we are dealing with. They would be dealing with climate change and climate change denial. Language does that. It enables you to unpack all sorts of incredible technologies and then deny the consequences of them. So I just think of that as the, the human condition, or you say the language condition. But I also think that the way to prevent assholery is to do it offline which can these days can often mean online that is play God. Humans need to play God. We need that comfort. It's what I call optimal illusion or strategic gullibility or safe escapism. That is you play God with uh, you, you take your flights of fancy, but always with a return ticket to reality secure in your heart pocket. It's not even a matter how far out you go. You can really pretend you're a total god of the universe in some video game and blow everybody up or whatever. It's all about whether you come back. It's not how far out you go. Mm -hmm. So I've gone to, I've been to Trump rallies and I have been to um, uh, death metal concerts, that kind of thing. They're about exactly the same in most respects. I've also been to church services. I would say they all have this quality. You go in, there's a little bit of cosplay. There's a little performance art. Uh, there's a lot of we glee, the glee of being us, not those losers out there. There's a lot of chanting along with lyrics that you're not really thinking about. The only difference that makes one of these more dangerous than another is what happens in the parking lot. After a death metal concert, people get in their cars and go home and get back to reality. And after some other events like this, same same effects, same therapeutic benefits, 
um, people go away thinking they've experienced something more real than reality. That's the danger from my perspective. So this business about kidding ourselves in ways that help more than harm, um, uh, you know, safe ways to, to play God, I think is important to preventative uh, to preventing people from becoming assholes. We need to elevate all of those pastimes. They are not just hobbies. I think they're a necessity. I think escapism is inescapable and that it's a human necessity. Entertainment, or what I call ventertainment, venting these appetites that would live in us um, and doing that safely and then getting back to reality. Really important and under undervalued. So in a way, what I'm suggesting is that we demote the elevated versions of this, this kind of thing to an elevated status for all of them. From my perspective, whether you go to church or you watch Marvel comic movies or you go to death metal concerts, you can get some wisdom from any of them. You can also get, get your yayas out. You can just vent. I don't see a huge difference between them qualitatively. Um, uh, and I think that's a little bit uncommon. I think that the norm is that some are more tawdry and others are more lofty. So I really like that idea, right? It's just the idea of leaning into it, but knowing that there's like a sense of play, right? Knowing that yeah. it's not serious, it's not hyper reality, it's not the truth or the gospel or something that excludes you from others. It's actually very connective. And what I'm hearing from you, and correct yeah. if I'm wrong, is that this asshole vibe or this asshole compulsion is is natural, right? So it's not oh, about totally denying natural. it. It's about knowing when to tap into it and knowing when to turn it on and off. Yeah, and so it's interesting from a social perspective. We say crime doesn't pay um, to discourage it, but crime actually pays really well with when, if you can get away with it. I think we have a similar scorn uh, as if it would be irrational to want to do these things, you know, that being an asshole doesn't pay. No, it pays gloriously. And we have to admit that if we're going to be able to prevent it from getting out of hand, we need to manage it in a way that, uh, that we can deal with it. And, and yeah, so that's what, that's a lot of where my work goes. And also, I also want to say, uh, we're already masters of it. When I watch a movie, I'm identifying with the good guys against the bad guys or the badasses against the, the good guys. I mean, I can, I can uh, do either. And if, and I totally believe it, I'm completely in it. But if you tap me on my shoulder, no, of course I know it's not true. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a way to handle that. Shakespeare had a great line like that in one of his sonnets. He said, when my love says she is made of truth, I do believe her though. I know she lies. So there's a, there's a way in which we can do that with our own selves and say, yeah, no, I totally believe I have found the answer. Of course, I, I know I wouldn't act on it because I don't, I know it's not true, but no, I get, I can reek, I can reap all of the benefits from believing without actually thinking it's true. I think that humans are capable of that kind of gullibility and it may be our salvation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if I can connect the dots here, it sounds like that is the antidote to assholery because what you're talking about is holding paradox and holding contradictory ideas, right? Where it sounds yeah. like if you're yeah. the asshole Trump bot, you know, typology, that doesn't grok, right? Like there are no contradictory ideas. All ideas are absolute. Well, yeah, it's interesting. So one of the ways I got into this thing about irony was I noticed that both ironists and hypocrites talk out both sides of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is the difference between them? And some people will talk as if 
there is no difference. Um, you know, there's a, there's a movement that, but I think the difference is that the ironist is winking. The ironist is putting their eccentric cardness on the table for everyone to keep an eye on it. They are exposing their own ambivalences, whereas a hypocrite is denying their ambivalences. Uh, so they're claiming consistency as a liberation from ever having to pay any attention to their own inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. um, it's a big difference to me, you know, I, and so self-effacing humor is glorious. I would actually say that from my perspective, one of the best congregations, spiritual congregations around these days is stand-up comedy mm -hmm. because it's a congregation that is laughing at and with each other because humanity is a, a hoot. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, incredibly slapstick the predicament we're in these mid-sized mammals with this newfangled ungainly thing called language it's just bizarre to be us um and terrifying so yes i i, I think there's something to that yeah having lightness having humor holding things as not true but also absolutely true it's, it's great it's, it's beautiful um i'm curious in your life personally where do you work out your asshole tendencies like what what groups have you joined or what tribes are you can you wave the banner of Oh, uh, so so I can say, first of all, I do VR exercise uh, every night. Um, that's one of my big uh, ways of getting it out. I'll also watch copious amounts of TV at the end of my day. Um, I'll often, I'm Californian, so I, at the end of the day, I'll often do VR exercise stoned. That's what we do out here in California. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then I'll practice bass and watch TV into the night. I'll often get ideas doing all of that. But in terms of the current weekly I get, I am delighted to be part of a research group um, that I think is dealing with very big questions. Uh, you know, the most fundamental one that I work on with that uh, Berkeley professor is, uh, it's, I mean, it's humongous. What is trying? What are beings and trying and how do they start? Because there's no beings or trying in chemistry. Chemistry is not trying and yet we organisms are. So that's origins of life work. Well, I mean, you can imagine that uh, I, I get my yayas out thinking that I'm working on a very big problem. I have a, I, we have a hypothesis that explains it, which is an incredibly pompous thing to claim. At the same time, we work in science, which means that you can't work in science without the possibility that you will have spent your entire life barking up the wrong tree. So I don't, I, I don't take myself too seriously in it, even though I take myself plenty seriously in it. Um, other than that, I would say that my big fantasy is still music. Um, you know, I grew up in this impressionable era when we just thought these guys were gods. And so uh, that's a place where I play out my strategic, uh, where I play out my optimal illusion. I, I, when, I'm, when I'm playing well, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like a musical god. I am not one. I'm actually, my hands are kind of slow. I'm not very coordinated. Um, but it's fun to feel like it. And, and I think I can manage to do both. I can feel like I'm really good like a hot shot. And then, no, I know I'm not. <laughs> I, I watch YouTube videos. I see what the hot, shit, hot shots play like. They're better than me. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. And it, it is such a great message for a culture that is so much. Yeah. I feel like we are really polarized, right? It's like either people like live in humility and shame and don't want to shine or people are grandiose and can't help but shine, right? And shine no matter what and shine over everybody else. Yeah. It sounds like you're advocating again for that middle path or that center way of the curvy highway of know that you can shine and shine. Also know that you can't and that you're just a humble human creature trying to make it. 
Yeah. Um, I have this, I have this idea that I played with for a long time, hard left, hard, right, hard center, hard choices. Um, hard left love is the answer or humility is the answer you get beat up. And so you say hard, right? No toughness is the answer. Uh, you get beat up and you say tough love is the answer. Um, and then you realize, no, it's not the answer. It's the question when to be tough and when to be loving. So it's, for me, the middle path is never a notch right in the middle or else it would be like the Jews going to Hitler and say, look, you want to kill 6 million of us. We want you to kill zero. So 3 million, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not a negotiation. No, 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 no. <laughs> the road is curving. Sometimes you gotta be way over to one side or the other. And the trick is to just get better and better at driving it. So you don't fall off either opposite side. <laughs> I love that message. Well, Jeremy, we're just about at the end here. This was a great interview, tons of fun, learned a lot. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or more about this work that you've been doing? Well, um, you can just find way, way too much of me by um, Googling Jeremy Sherman. I have a consolidated website um, called uh, jeremysherman.com. I have a thousand, I have a thousand blog articles on everyday decision-making up at Psychology Today under the name Ambigamy Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. I also have a blog there called Jerkology. Um, the, I have two YouTube channels, um, but all of that is consolidated at jeremysherman.com. And I've got uh, this new book out called What's Up with Assholes. I had to change the name so there's two asterisks instead of S's in the title so I could advertise it. Um, but it's up on Amazon and it's available very cheap. Um, I don't need to make money off this stuff. I give it away for free and anybody can contact me. You can just uh, email me at js at jeremysherman.com. I put out probably 15 to 20 uh, bumper sticker size memes every uh, day on Facebook. You can become my Facebook friend um, and no one is captive audience. You can have as much of me as you want and please no more than you want. I have to live with me, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining. Um, if you're listening, thanks so much for listening into the end of the episode. Uh, similarly, share us on social media, send it to your friends. If there's something you enjoyed in this conversation, or if there's someone who thinks an asshole that maybe needs to hear this a little bit, uh, shoot it their way. So thank you much for tuning in. I will catch you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.